Let's take our Bibles and go back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 today. We have two sermons and two Bible studies, Lord willing, uh, today and then next Sunday. And so with those things, I hope to get Daniel 9 wrapped up and then we will, we will have some, uh, some break from the book of Daniel with Pastor John and Pastor Eric preaching and, and Christmas. And then we will try to finish out the book of Daniel in the new year in Daniel 10 through 12. So this morning, Daniel's prayer in the first half of Daniel chapter 9. Uh, but I keep trying to give us that kind of review list of the whole book because Daniel is one of those books where you very often hear a little phrase from this, a little verse from this, you know, in, in different places. And uh, I long for us not to just um, know a few verses here and there, but really grasp the flow of the book of Daniel. So let's review again. Chapter 1, Daniel's a teenager taken cap- captive into Babylon, right? Education at what I'm kind of jokingly calling Babylon Palace High School. And he had to have tremendous courage to stand for what was right in that terrible setting. And the Lord gives remarkable insight to him. So then chapter 2, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of the statue. And Daniel is the only one who can interpret this message about future world kingdoms. Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar follows that dream by building his own statue, probably of himself. And again, Daniel's Jewish friends have to have tremendous courage to not worship that statue and to be willing to even face the fiery furnace. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar dreams again and is humbled to be like an animal until his heart is broken and he comes to understand that God is the sovereign God over all kings and kingdoms. Chapter 5, we jump to the end of the Babylonian Empire and King Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon who holds this blasphemous party and then is defeated. Chapter 6, we reach the beginning of the new Persian Empire that defeated Babylon. And though Daniel was promoted in that new empire, he there was a conspiracy against him. Once again, there had to be tremendous courage to be willing to even risk his life to do what would honor the Lord, to be willing to face the lion's den. Then in chapter 7, Daniel receives his first vision. Before that, it had been Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, but now Daniel has a vision of four kingdoms. And out of the fourth kingdom comes this little horn, this ruler. We also learn there about the Ancient of Days, the, the throne of God and the Son of Man, the coronation of God's king who defeats the, the little horn. Last week, we looked at chapter 8, which is another vision of Daniel of two kingdoms this time. And in the second, later in the second kingdom, there is one terrifying politician. He is Antiochus Epiphanes IV in the 160s BC, and he is a, uh, a type of future terrible ruler. So today we come to chapter 9, and here Daniel prays after Babylon falls, and then at the end of the chapter, God reveals the 70 weeks. So would you look with me at Daniel 9, verse 1? In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent, Amid, who was made king 
over the realm of the Chaldeans. So will you turn back now to Daniel chapter 5? And let me just remind us briefly what's going on here. At the end of Daniel 5, the Babylonian Empire fell. Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. The Medo-Persian empires were just about to arrive at the city of Babylon, but Belshazzar foolishly, arrogantly carried on with this big party, which turned into a blasphemous party. And then God wrote that message on the wall, which only Daniel was able to read, a message of judgment, and Babylon fell that night. At the beginning of chapter 6, then, Daniel was appointed to a government position in the new Medo-Persian Empire. So let's read that. Chapter 5, verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So we talked about Darius the Mede back in chapter 6. I think this is a ruler whom Cyrus appointed over the province of Babylon. Uh, It says in chapter 6, verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. So the reason I'm showing you this is because you could insert Daniel chapter 9 right here. This is where it goes in the chronology, right after Babylon is overtaken by Persia and Darius is appointed over the province of Babylon. So, you can turn back to Daniel chapter 9. At this point, Daniel was in his 80s. And he had received quite a bit of fascinating, confusing, and sometimes troubling information from God about the future. So, for example, from Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream, Daniel knew that there would be a sequence of world, major world empires that would fo- follow Babylon leading up to the kingdom of God. From the vision of the four beasts, he learned about this terrible ruler who oppresses God's people. Though he also learned about the Ancient of Days who judges the final ruler and, and the Son of Man who is the king of the eternal kingdom. And, how, and he learned about how God's people inherit the kingdom with the Son of Man. Then from chapter 8 in the vision of the two beasts, he learned that there would be a Greek empire with a ruler who would horribly oppress God's people. So simply put, we could say that over the course of Daniel's lifetime, he had gotten some good news and some bad news about the future. Good news was that earthly empires were completely in God's sovereign control and they would rise and fall as God wanted them to rise and fall. And ultimately God's king and God's kingdom would defeat them all and the people of God would inherit the kingdom. The bad news was that in the meantime, Israel was going to suffer terribly under one bad world empire after another. So as chapter 9 begins, picture Daniel in his 80s with all of that swirling in his head, and then two things happened. First of all, Babylon did fall, just as God had promised. And Daniel saw it, though God protected him and even allowed him to be promoted in the new Persian Empire. So what does that mean? What does it mean that Babylon has fallen? And then something else happened. Daniel was reading his precious Hebrew scriptures. You've probably all got Bibles very few Jews in Babylon would have had a copy of the scriptures they could go take off the shelf. 
Daniel was very privileged to be high in government and to, to have that uh, opportunity. And he surely loved them and he studied them. And one day as he was studying, he was reminded of something very important. So Daniel 9 verse 1 in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books, not, not books like our books, scrolls, perceived in the scrolls the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So through Jeremiah, God had promised that the exile would only last for 70 years. Then Babylon would be defeated and they'd be able to return. We don't have time to go read these chapters this morning, but I would encourage you to go read Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. Um, you'll see lots of connections to Daniel that are very, very helpful. In Jeremiah 25, God promised that Israel would serve the king of Babylon 70 years and then God would punish the Babylonian empire. And in Jeremiah 29, God promised that after 70 years, he would bring them back to Jerusalem. So that was the promise. Babylon would be defeated and they would have the opportunity to come back to Jerusalem. Notice that Daniel in the middle of verse two calls it the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. It is really intriguing to, to see that he knew the writings of Jeremiah were the word of God even though they had only been written like two generations earlier. Actually, he was so old. This is the other really interesting thing. He was so old that when he was a boy in Jerusalem, he probably heard Jeremiah preach. And now he has these scrolls of the writings, the preaching of Jeremiah, and he says, this is the word of God. Already knew this was the scriptures. So as Daniel read this in the prophecies of Jeremiah, his head started spinning immediately since God had already punished Babylon. And, and since the 70 years, you know, there's, it's, it, there's no way to know exactly in God's mind when that started and ended. But from Daniel's standpoint, he's, he would have been saying, okay, either the 70 years is up or it's almost up. So if Babylon has fallen and the 70 years is over or almost over, what, what happens next? So I, I think of it this way. I feel like Daniel had a lot of questions, a lot of grief, and also some hope. He had a lot of questions. If Babylon has fallen and if the 70 years are up, why are we still here? And what happens next? In addition to questions, he had a lot of grief. He thought back on Israel's history and it broke his heart how unfaithful they had been to their God. And even when the warnings came true and they were exiled to Babylon, how little they seemed to seek God. So he had a lot of questions. He had a lot of grief. And he also had some hope because God had promised to do something. You know, probably, Jeremiah 29, 11, because it's all over Hobby Lobby. <laughs> for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a hope and a future. Do you know what's in the verse right before that? It's the promise of the 70 years. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. That's the context. It's this Daniel 9 context. 
God had a hope and a future. So it was right around the time of Daniel's death, just shortly after Daniel chapter 9, that the Persian rulers looked favorably on the Jewish people and began allowing them to return to their land, to start rebuilding the temple, and then to eventually rebuild the city of Jerusalem as well. God did keep his word. But those things happened after Daniel 9. At this point, all Daniel knew was that Babylon was fallen and that the 70 years were just about up. And so, with his Bible open to Jeremiah, looking at the promise of God, he started to pray. And I'm sure that some of you know what this is like. You read your Bible and you find some promise of God and it gives you a spark of hope, but you've also got questions. Okay, Lord, I see what you say here. I'm not sure I understand what this means. Or, okay, Lord, I see your promise here, but it doesn't look like you're keeping your promise. Or, why haven't you kept your promise yet? Or even, maybe I messed it all up and forfeited my chance and this promise isn't even for me. So oftentimes we come to the Word of God and look at the promises of God and it gives us hope and yet we've got some questions. So Daniel took the promises of God in Jeremiah and he he did just what Pastor John's been teaching us about the last two prayer meetings. He prayed based on Scripture. He brought his questions and his confusions and his hopes to God in prayer. Verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, this is a powerful prayer that is recorded in verses 4 through 19. We could, we could just pause our whole Daniel sermon and we could spend like a month on this prayer. Um, there's a lot, a lot to learn here, but I don't want us, I, I want to keep following the flow of thought in Daniel. Um, so, we're, we're not going to do that now. So today I'm just going to focus on how this prayer fits into the bigger picture of what we're learning in Daniel. And it'd be awesome if you studied this prayer on your own um, in, in response to this. Now you see in verse 3 that Daniel was pretty pumped as he prayed, right? Like excited, joyful, probably dancing a little bit. In verse 3? Oh, no. The reason why I'm saying that is because if it would seem to make sense to me that seeing the promise of the 70 weeks and I mean the 70 years and, and realizing they're, they've got to be just about up and Babylon's already fallen, it seems to me that Daniel would be like, woohoo, this is so cool. And instead, he's tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth and fasting and putting ashes on himself as if somebody died. These are all the, exp- the things they did to show their earnestness and their brokenness before God. And so I say, why? Why, when it seems like he heard these, he got this great news from Jeremiah 25 and 29, is he, is he acting as if he's at a funeral? I think Daniel senses that something is not right. He knows that Israel's relationship with God is still very, very broken. 
Yes, God had promised to overthrow Babylon, and, and God had done it, and God had promised to allow Israel to return to their land, but both of those things are external. Neither of those things was going to fix the deep spiritual problems that the nation still had. And so God did keep his promises, but the number of people who returned to the land was actually very small. And the rebuilding of the temple in the city did happen, but but both of them were pretty small and simple. And most importantly, the spiritual problems of the nation were still severe. So yeah, Daniel had some renewed hope, but he couldn't just celebrate He had to grieve and repent and pray. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. The beginning of verse 4, you see that word Lord with the, the small capital letters. That's the name Yahweh, that personal name of God that he had revealed to Israel. When God says it, it, it we would, he would say, I am. He's the great I am. When we say it, we say, he is the self-existent one, He is everything he needs to be. He is everything we need him to be. And so Daniel 9 is actually the only place in the book of Daniel where we have that name used, that personal name for God. He prays to Yahweh and he makes confession. There was much sin to confess. And yet, do you see that he still begins with praise? Oh, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. There are two very important words there. And the first is the word covenant. A covenant is a set of promises that create a relationship between two parties. And God had made three great covenants with Israel, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant through Moses, and the covenant with David. And we can't start to get into all those covenants right now. But what Daniel says here is that God keeps covenant. He is always faithful to all of his promises. He keeps all of his covenants. And then the other key word in verse 4 is the word that the ESV is translating, steadfast love. And that's the very important Old Testament word, chesed, which speaks of God's kind and loyal love. It's a word for love that especially emphasizes the kindness of love and the loyalty, the faithfulness of love. David knows that his God always keeps his promises and that his love is full of both kindness and loyalty. However, covenants include, oftentimes include relationships for both parties. And with the covenant through Moses, that was especially the case. Israel was supposed to be faithful to God. They were supposed to love him and obey him and worship only him. That was their covenant responsibility, but they had not. Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. In other words, we have broken our end of the covenants. We have ignored the covenant commandments. We haven't been faithful 
to the covenant, we've been unfaithful to you. Now, this is talking specifically about Israel and specifically about their covenants with God, but it reflects a broader principle that all of us have sinned against our Creator. We were created to love Him and obey Him and be faithful to Him, but we have sinned and been unfaithful to Him. And that's why Paul says in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. All human beings, not just the Israel, can say, God is faithful, but we have not been faithful to God. And that's why we need Jesus as a Savior, as the sacrifice for our sins. By the way, you might notice in verse 5 that Daniel is using the plural we. We have sinned. But notice also down in verse 20, he says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin. So he's not just leaving it in a national sense, also confessing his own personal sin. Now in verse 6, we see that not only had they been unfaithful to God, but they had also ignored all the warnings that God sent. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. So God not only gave them commands and rules, covenant expectations, And then they rejected those and were unfaithful. But after that, God followed up with century after century after century of the prophets coming and warning them, teaching them, um, wooing them, disciplining them, calling them, and they had not listened. So, verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness but to us open shame. And that means, God, you have done everything right. You have kept covenant. You have been faithful. We're the ones who are not. So you can stand in righteousness. We can stand only in shame. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. God warned them that if they did not keep his covenants, they would be sent into exile. And so they were scattered into the nations, including Babylon, because of their treachery against God. In other words, why are they in Babylon? It is discipline designed to bring Israel back to their covenant God. That's why they're there. Verse 8, To us, O Yahweh, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity, 
For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. God loved His people so much that He was even willing to ruin Jerusalem and ruin His own temple that He might bring His people back to Himself. And yet, when God did those things, and when Jerusalem was ruined, and when the temple was destroyed during Daniel's lifetime, did Israel turn back to God? Generally speaking, though there were some exceptions, but generally speaking, the answer was no. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities. In other words, he's saying we have not turned from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Isn't that an interesting phrase? We have not listened. We have not gained the insight that you have been giving us by prophet after prophet through your truth. We have not sought you. We have not turned from our sin. Therefore, verse 14, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought it, has brought it upon us. For Yahweh, our God, is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. And by the way, if you want to know what true confession sounds like, it sounds like that. Not, I might have made some mistakes, or I'm sorry if it came across that way to you, or I guess I'm not perfect, or, well, I messed up, but you did too. True repentance, true confession sounds like, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. All right, how many prayer requests have you seen up to this point? I don't think we've had one yet. I think we get the first prayer request in verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. And let's pause there. This is very interesting. Daniel knows that even though the 70 years are up, God's anger and wrath have not yet turned away from Jerusalem. Israel had still not repented and turned to the Lord. And so even though Cyrus was soon going to allow the Jews to begin to return to Jerusalem, things were still very broken and Israel was still far from God. Unfortunately, the return of the people to Jerusalem did not picture the return of the people's hearts to God, or it did not correspond to the return of the people's hearts to God. And that's why Daniel couldn't just celebrate. But there's another reason found in verse 16. Let's start at the beginning of the verse again. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Notice that he calls Jerusalem your city, your holy hill, your people. I think he says something like that about 
between 20 and 25 times in this prayer. Your city and your holy hill and your people have become a byword. That means that other nations scorned Jerusalem and scorned the Jewish people, treating them with contempt, insulting them, mocking them, scorning them. And when Jerusalem and the, and the Jewish people were treated with such contempt, that was a reflection on their God. So, Daniel could not just celebrate the end of the 70 years, first of all, because Israel was still far from God, and second of all, because Israel was still tarnishing God's reputation among the nations. God's name was still in the gutter because of Israel's wickedness and rebellion. Verse 17, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake... O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Let's pause there again. This is how we should always pray. God, for the sake of your name, for your honor, for your fame, for your glory, please act. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God chose Israel to be his special people for his glory. But as Daniel looked around the ancient Near East in the 500s BC, all he could see was the dishonor of God everywhere he looked because of the wicked ways of God's people. And so he was praying not only for the good of the Jewish people through their repentance, but also for the glory of God. Verse 18 Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Pastor Eric said that exact thing to us in the song service this morning. They could not earn their way into God's favor. They could not bribe God or bargain with God. They could not erase the long trail of wickedness that lay behind them. They could only be forgiven if God would be merciful. And the same is true for all people today. We cannot earn God's favor, bargain with God, bribe God, erase our sins. Our relationship with him can only be healed if God chooses to show mercy. But Daniel knew God was a God of great mercy. Daniel didn't know that five centuries later, God was going to send his only begotten son as the sacrifice for guilty sinners. Jesus died in our place as an expression of God's mercy so that a holy and just God could look on us and say, you are forgiven. So even though Daniel didn't know about the cross and the mercy of God in Jesus, he knew that God was full of mercy. And so he pled for it. So are you picturing 80-something-year-old Daniel with Jeremiah in front of him? He's got a lot of grief in his heart. He's got questions too. He's also got some hope in this God of great mercy. And so with all of that in his heart, he just cries out to God in verse 19 in this crescendo. It is one of the most powerful moments of prayer in all the Bible. Verse 19, Oh, Lord, hear 
Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. If you have thought that prayer needs to be very formal and very stiff and use just the perfect words and so forth, hopefully this shows you that that is not the case. Daniel's just kind of blurting things out here, blurting out his desperate cries. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention. That's pretty, pretty blunt. I mean, this is the God of omniscience, and you just told him to pay attention. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Don't delay. For your own sake, this is about your name and your glory. Please do something. It's okay to pray like that. Your prayers don't have to be like, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for all the good things you've done for us. And I pray you'd help us to obey you today. Just be, and, uh, um, and, um, and help Aunt Susie pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's okay. It's better to like pour your heart out with your Bible open. And lest we think that God might just barely tolerate us doing that, Daniel 9 continues with some amazing information. Verse 20, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the first, back in the last chapter, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. As John Lennox says, what happened next was dramatic. As Daniel finished his prayer, what looked like a flying man landed at his side. Now, admittedly, there is a translation question about the phrase, in swift flight. There are two different Hebrew root words that could be behind that. Um, one of them would refer to Daniel's extreme weariness. He came in Daniel's extreme weariness. Some translations take it way, that way. The other root word would refer to swift flight. Either way, God sent an angel, and this is the great angel Gabriel to appear to Daniel. Now, his appearance was like a man. He looked like a man to Daniel, but this is definitely the angel Gabriel, the same one who was in the previous chapter, the same one who came to Mary uh, in the New Testament who shows up right, it, it, I mean, it, the way it reads here, it seems like right when Daniel is just crying out to God in verse 19, suddenly this angel shows up. I was reading this week, uh, or I think it was last week, First um, Kings 19, which tells of the time when Jezebel promised that she was going to kill Elijah within 24 hours. And Elijah fled, and he finally collapsed in the wilderness, and he just said, God, I'm done. I just want to die. And then God sent an angel to touch him and to feed him. And while, so while Daniel was praying this heart-wrenching prayer, an angel was on the way and arrived right as Daniel was crying out to God. Verse 22, he made me understand so Gabriel ended up telling Daniel some things to help him understand what was going on with Israel and with God's relationship with his covenant people. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, 
Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you. So at the moment when Daniel started praying, God already knew what his prayer was going to be. And so God delivered a word to the angel Gabriel and said, Gabriel, take this to Daniel. Angels are not omnipresent. They're in one place at one time. So Gabriel had to travel to Daniel. So while Daniel was praying, the answer was literally on its way. And as he reached that crescendo in verse 19, Gabriel landed with a word from God. It's interesting. God couldn't do exactly what Daniel was asking. God couldn't forgive Israel for all their sins until Israel repented. But God did answer Daniel's prayer in a different way than exactly what Daniel was asking for. God answered his prayer by sending this word that would explain to him more about what God was doing. And we'll study that next week when we study uh, the end of the chapter. God loves it when we pray. God urges us to pray. God listens when we pray. And he might not send an angel, but he always hears and answers, even if we cannot see or understand how he answers. How sad it is that we would neglect prayer when our prayers are so precious to God. And yet the encouragement goes even deeper than that. For it is not only our prayers that are precious to God, we are precious to God. Verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy... A word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. And I assure you that it is not just Daniel who was greatly loved. It was all of Israel, for God had set his love upon them. Even in their rebellion, God loved them. Go read Hosea, and you'll see it so vividly. It was actually through Jeremiah. So right as God is sending them into exile in Babylon... He says to them, I have loved you with everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Jeremiah 31 verse 1. He says that as he's sending them into exile. He was not stopping his love for them. So it wasn't just Daniel. It was all of Israel and not just Daniel or Israel, but also every person today who comes to God through Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Romans 8 39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, from the new covenant in Jesus that is ours. The word loved here in verse 23 specifically means something like to treasure, to delight in, or to consider something as precious. So as Daniel was praying with a broken heart, God was looking upon him and saying, Daniel, You are precious to me. And in Christ, you can be certain that when you are praying, even if you're praying rough and ragged, raw prayers, God is looking upon you and saying, you are precious to me. Put that word greatly loved or or precious there in verse 23, together with with kesed back up in verse 4, that kind and loyal love. That is how God looks upon you when you are praying. 
And I just about come to tears when I remember that Daniel was in his 80s at this point. He had been kidnapped from Jerusalem as a teenager, and he had to go to a terrible pagan high school. And he had to live in the pagan pit of Babylon for seven decades. And by God's grace, he had been faithful, and he had risked everything to love and serve his God. And now, right at the end of his life, God sends an angel and says, Daniel, God wants you to know that he loves you greatly. You are precious to him. Remember, Daniel had just been confessing his own sin to God. He was not greatly loved because he was so impressive, but because God is so merciful and so good. By the way, another interesting side note about this. Many years later, the same angel, Gabriel, would come to a young woman named Mary and tell her she was a favored one who had found favor with God. So I think Ah, based on those two little pieces of evidence, Gabriel was a very encouraging angel. So if you learn how to encourage other people, especially by reminding them of what God thinks about them, you're learning to do ministry like an angel. Let me close with a little story. Uh, I, f- I came across mention of this in Dale Ralph Davis's commentary, and then I, I went and looked up some more information about it. Philip Doddridge, It's probably an unfamiliar name to all of us, Um, but he was a moderately well-known pastor in England in the 1700s, um, and his influence extended well beyond that. He was an acquaintance of people like Isaac Watts and John Wesley and George Whitfield. Later, his writings were treasured by people like Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Philip Doddridge wrote more than 400 hymns. He was a pastor, and so he apparently had a regular habit of trying to write a hymn to go with each of his sermons for his people. Uh, Which means, you know, a lot of those hymns weren't real great if they were what he pulled off in a week together with his sermon prep. But it still shows you his heart um, for his people, for the word, and for the role of poetry and songs and worship. Um, So most of those hymns are long forgotten, um, but you might know, you might have heard of the hymn, Graced Has a Charming Sound, he co-wrote that with Augustus Toplady, who was mentioned earlier in our service because we sang his text, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. Toplady and Dotteridge were friends and wrote Graced is a Charming Sound together. Um, And there was one other song Philip Dotteridge wrote. Um, Oh, if you know the hymn, Oh Happy Day, Dotteridge wrote that text, actually. Um, So, Philip Doddridge's mother died when he was eight years old. His father died when he was 12. And then his guardian wasted all of his money. And by the age of 13, Philip was a penniless orphan. But a Presbyterian pastor took him in, treated him as a son, and Philip ended up as a pastor, a scholar who wrote commentaries, a hymn writer, and he also started a nonprofit that provided education for a lot of boys from families that were too poor um, for their sons to go to school. He married at the age of 28. He and his wife had nine children, but it was hard times and a hard life. Their first daughter died at the age of four. Half of their children died before they reached adulthood. But he faithfully pastored and loved people and wrote books and hymns. And 
there's a story about the end of Philip Doddridge's life that's actually recounted by Augustus Toplady, who got it from the Countess of Huntington. It was September of 1751, and Philip Doddridge was 49 years old. He was very sick, and his physician sent him to Bristol to try the hot baths and see if that would make him better, which it didn't. And so then his physician sent him to Lisbon in Portugal to get some warm, dry air and see if that would revive his, uh, his physical condition. Uh, and there were a number of um, uh, Christians who helped pay for that trip for him to get to Portugal. One of them was the Countess of Huntington. And so on one stop of his journey down to the port to board the ship to go to Lisbon, um, he and his wife spent the night at Lady Huntington's um, estate. And Lady Huntington told Augustus Toplady that on the morning that Philip Doddridge was to depart, she came past his room and saw him weeping. When she inquired, she found that he was reading in the book of Daniel, where God called Daniel a man greatly loved. You are in tears, sir, said Lady Huntington. I am weeping, madam, he said, but they are tears of comfort and joy. A few days later, when he was about to board the boat to Lisbon, as his health continued to to worsen, he wrote to a friend about what would happen if he did not survive the trip. He wrote, if I do not survive my voyage, all will be well. I hope I shall embrace the wave which Sorry, I'll get it out in a second. I hope I shall embrace the wave which when I intended to go to Lisbon would land me in heaven. <laughs> and he made it to Lisbon and he died just a few days later, 2 weeks after he cried what he said were tears of comfort and joy when he read that God said to Daniel, you are greatly loved. And so I just want to remind us then to think of God like that, to think of God's view of you like that when you hear these verses. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Or we could say, how much more will your Father who loves you greatly give good things? to those who ask him because of Christ. Let's pray.